We're going to begin our time of teaching together. Welcome to Sedaris Church. I love that every week, every week, reigning in the four-minute conversation is tough to do. And that's just kind of a testament that we could really talk to each other all day. So um, look at your neighbor, tell him, hey, let's get lunch, because we can do that now uh, that we meet during the morning. So, all right, well, welcome. Uh, Allie Jones is up here. She didn't tell you that she is actually the one that's going to be leading that new fellowship group. Uh, in the Eastlake neighborhood. Let's just give her a round of applause. And then she's also leading it with Young Ben. Where's Young Ben? Where are you at, Young Ben? Where are you, Young Ben? Yeah, there he is. So they're starting up a new group, and it's going to be really exciting. We're really encouraged by a new group in the Eastlake neighborhood. Um, So if you're new and you're you're on that half of the city, um, that'll be a really great place to really start to get plugged in here at Sedaris Church. Uh, We love those guys. They've been really leadership, uh, mature Christians for a while now, and so we're really excited that they're going to start a group together. So that's uh, Allie and Young Ben Eastlake group. Exciting, exciting. Well, if you brought your Bible today, go ahead and uh, take it out. We use that every week here at Sedaris, and turn over to Psalm 37. Psalm 37 is where we're going to be, and if you don't have a Bible, we have some placed down at the ends of the rows. You can grab that one and turn over to Psalm 37. And uh, yeah, that's where we'll be. If you don't have a Bible, take that one home with you. That's our gift to you today, all right? Psalm 37. If you don't know where the book of Psalms is, uh, there's no shame using the table of contents to find it. It's like right in the middle of the Bible as well. So if you just open up and start thumbing around, you should be able to find it without a problem. So um, if you're just joining us today, today we are nearing the end of our summer sermon series um, in the book of Psalms. And each week we've taken a different psalm, a different psalm each week, and we've really asked uh, one question. Well, it's, it's a two-part question. What does this psalm teach us about prayer? And what does this psalm teach us about life? Because the psalms are a collection of prayers uh, in, in the book of Psalms. Uh, the book of Psalms is the ancient pre- Hebrew prayer manual. It's uh, over half of it. It's 3,000 years old. And what happens in the psalms is we see these authors encounter life circumstances, big ones, some small, and then they come to God in prayer. And when they're praying, what actually happens, what we actually find happen is they they encounter new ways to how to go back out into the world and live that life, okay? And so what we're finding is that um, life drives prayer and prayer drives life and back and forth, back and forth. These two things are constantly in a conversation with each other, feeding off of one another and growing uh, really the people of God into more and more mature people and more and more of a praying people. So we've been learning how to pray, and we've been learning how to live this summer together, which has been really fun. We've called it the the Psalms, prayer as life, because these two things are so intrinsically related. And today we come to Psalm 37. Um, Psalm 37 isn't actually a prayer. It's in the book of prayer, uh, but it's not actually a prayer, which is very interesting. There's only a few Psalms that aren't prayers themselves. This Psalm is heavy on the life side, very heavy on the life side. It's what is called a wisdom psalm, a wisdom psalm. And and in order to understand it, we really need to wrap our heads around what wisdom literature is all about. Because wisdom literature is very unique. Uh, Technically, all the psalms are wisdom literature, and this is why. Wisdom literature deals with a couple questions that go something like this. Um, First, 
Why do bad things happen to good people? Why do bad things happen to good people? And then it deals with this other question, why do good things happen to bad people? If you just pick a psalm and read it, you'll find that tension right there in, in, in almost each and every prayer. When you look at the books that are around uh, the book of Psalms, uh, other wisdom literature, that's Job, that's Proverbs, that's Ecclesiastes, these are dealing with these questions on deep, deep, deep levels. Like the whole book of Job, it's like really long, and it's all one big long discussion on why is all this bad stuff happening to good old Job? Okay, it's this huge, long discussion about that. Okay, and so that's what wisdom literature tries to do. It tries to, it wrestles with these questions. And so we actually find it pretty interesting when, um, and this happens often in a city like Seattle, when people point to these questions as a reason for why they can't believe in God. You've probably heard this objection before uh, many times in many different ways, but it's like, if, if God allows evil like this, I just can't believe in a God that's like that, or substitute some other a version of that question. Kind of the general notion is, oh, we've caught Christianity with their pants down, or their hand in the cookie jar uh, here. Uh, Christianity really isn't connected to reality or how life actually works, but the people of God have been wrestling with these questions for thousands and thousands of years, very honestly, very publicly. I mean, these four books represent like 15% of what the Bible is that are explicitly dealing with these questions. Other, uh, there's countless other parts in the Bible that explicitly deal with these questions, countless other parts that implicitly are wrestling with them. And so really that's what we're going to be doing today. We're going to join these questions today because we're in wisdom literature of the psalm and something that's really, Psalm 37 is really focused on wisdom, really, really focused on wisdom today, okay? And so how we're actually going to start, this is a longer psalm, but Janelle's going to uh, come on up to the microphone over here. You're good to go, Janelle, yep. And she is going to be reading some excerpts from our psalm just so that we can kind of get a flavor for what this feels like, okay? And then I'll pray for our time together and we'll get going, okay? Thanks, Janelle. Go for it. Father, we, um, we come before you today uh, as people who are looking to consider who Jesus is, God. Maybe we're, we're coming into this service today a little bit frazzled. Maybe we're coming into this service uh, with an abundance of peace with us, God. Whichever, um, however our hearts are right now, God, I pray that you would uh, instill within us a love for your word and a, a love for your heart um, in delivering it to us and, and how you want to bring um, wisdom, love, and peace to this world through it. So we just pray right now that you would you'd give us hearts that would uh, be able to sit under your word, give us ears to hear, God. Pray that you would uh, protect uh, my words as I speak them, Lord, and, and Lord, would you make them yours. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. All right. So you got a little bit of a taste of that psalm as Janelle read it. And uh, a couple things probably popped out to you. The first thing that, that probably jumped out at you was that David's talking about these two parties, these two different warring parties, it seems, in the psalm of, uh, it was right there in verse 9, for the evildoers shall be cut off. That's one of the parties, uh, who, whom David calls the evildoers. He'll later call them the wicked. He'll call them, uh, or you could call them the, or the faithless if you wanted to. Then there's this other party in verse 9 there, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. 
those who wait for the Lord. He'll also speak of them in terms of the righteous, or you can call them the faithful. Those who wait for the Lord and the evildoers are the wicked. Righteous, wicked. This is kind of extreme language, right? I think this language uh, to 21st century Seattleites, this can kind of shock us. But don't assume that David is suggesting a hard and fast dualism here. What he actually isn't saying is that everybody falls into one of these two camps. Because there's actually a third party that David is addressing and interacting with in this psalm, and that's his audience. And that's his audience. This is why it's very helpful to know that this is wisdom literature. Wisdom literature. Um, This is the third party that's always present in all of wisdom literature. And this party is called something uh, very neat. It's called the simple. The simple. Wisdom literature is always addressed primarily to the simple. Not necessarily the righteous or the wicked, but primarily to this third party called the simple. Well, who are these people? Who are the simple? Who are they? Um, when I went to college back in, I guess it was a long time ago, I went to college a long time ago, uh, I, like many people, I think it's the first time I've had to say that, getting a little old. Anyways, I, like most uh, people who grew up in the Christian faith, had to wrestle with my faith in a new way when I left home, when I went to college. Um, is Christianity and Jesus true? Does Christianity and Jesus really explain what we observe to be true about everything? Um, is Christianity, is it actually helpful? You know, these are big questions that I had to wrestle with uh, throughout college, and I wrestled with them, I wrestled with them. And about halfway through college, I found the book of Proverbs. The book of Proverbs. I must have read the book of Proverbs like 20 times in my college years. And this is what I love about the book of Proverbs. This is they talk about the simple in the book of Proverbs. In the first 10 chapters, you'll see the simple mentioned about 10 times. And this, this term, simple, this, this people group of the simple is really beautiful. It's not necessarily a morally uh, neutral term, the simple. The simple actually represents someone who's fairly ignorant on how life actually works. Fairly ignorant on how it works. They're pretty naive with regards to how life will play itself out and, and what's good to pursue in life. And this ignorance, this, this naivete, really leads to, uh, well, not leads to, but it kind of shows some immaturity in these people. It can show some inexperience uh, in the world. And um, here's the deal. If this immaturity, this ig- ignorance, this inexperience, this na- naivete, if it goes unchecked, that's a problem. Because there's something true about the simple as well, and that's that their hearts kind of tend towards selfishness. That if you kind of let a simple person off on their own, that they're going to tend to appease and chase after their own selfish desires in life. And so the book of Proverbs is this, this wonderful drama that you see played out in the first nine chapters of, of Lady Wisdom versus Lady Folly. And they're each kind of petitioning for the simple to come their way and learn their ways so that they can experience life. And the big idea is if the simple is left uncorrected, he'll, he or she will end up with Lady Folly and they'll self-destruct. That's an overview, 30,000-foot view of the book of Proverbs, okay? And I I saw this when I was in college, and I said, whoa, 
that's me. <laughs> I have no idea what I'm doing. I think all of us feel that in college and in our, in our 20s. I have no idea what I'm doing. I'm pretty ignorant. And if I'm honest with myself, I'm, I'm pretty selfish. <laughs> and if, if I look at the, the things that I'm chasing after, if I let those go unchecked in my life, I'm eventually going to end up in what the Bible calls wickedness and then ultimately self-destruction. And so this is what uh, the same audience that this psalm is speaking to today. It's speaking to people who are simple, that don't have a lot of experience in life. It's speaking to 20 and young 30-somethings who are like, I don't have a ton of experience. I'm a little ignorant. I'm a little immature. I'm a little naive as to how this life actually works, okay? And so this uh, psalm is an invitation for all of us to say, you know what? Let's entertain for a little bit that we don't have it figured out hard to do in your 20s, hard to do in, in your young 30s. Let's entertain the thought for a little bit that we don't have it figured out, that left unchecked, we're just going to fulfill our selfish desires, and that might lead us to self-destruction somewhere down the road, okay? Um, if you're here and you are kind of older, you have a little more experience in life, that's, that's fine too because you might be here because you did make a decision to trust Jesus and start following him in your 20s, in your 20s and 30s. Um, and then also this, uh, God is powerful, he's miraculous, and he can give new simple hearts to anybody whom he chooses. And so if you're here today and you're like, man, I've been living a life without Jesus for a long time, that's okay. Like God can give you a new heart and, and you can just start to even admit today that, hey, or even ask God today, can you give me a simple heart that tries to look at the world through a new lens you don't even have to come all the way and put your faith in Jesus. Maybe you just want a simple heart. Here at Sedaris, we're all about helping people consider. And maybe that's your first step of consideration. How can I begin to have a simple heart? It goes for people in all age groups. How can I begin to have a simple heart today? Okay? All right. And so one thing that I, that's very interesting that when we understand who the simple are is that the, sim, is that the Bible doesn't say to the simple the simple uh, 20-something, uh, drunken, sex-crazed, greedy person. It doesn't get in their face and say, hey, you're wicked. It approaches them and it tries to instruct them and it says, hey, you're simple. The path you're going down here is not a good path. It's not going to lead to life. It's not going to lead to love. In the end, it's going to end up in self-destruction. It's much more gentle than that. Than, than the first way we talk about it here. And so this is an important qualifier to talk about at this point. I actually wrote it down so I wouldn't misspeak it. Um, we have to understand that sin may, like, you may think about your sin today, but I want you to know that wisdom literature doesn't get in your face and say, hey, you're wicked. It says, hey, you're a little simple. Um, wisdom literature, it's an invitation to humility that we might experience forgiveness and grace, which provides freedom and empowerment, okay? Empowerment to live an, a new life. Wisdom literature is not to be taken as an opportunity to neatly separate people into categories of righteous and wicked and then stand back and point and judge them, okay? That's not what's happening here. I wanna make that really, really clear. Uh, wisdom literature is meant for instruction it is not meant for enforcement. It is meant for teaching. It is not meant 
for condemnation, okay? So I just want you to hear that really clearly up front before we start wrestling with this stuff today. God doesn't come to a simple person or even really a wicked person and just declare them wicked. He says, I have some wisdom to share with you that can bring you life and life to the full, that could empower you to experience grace and forgiveness and love because I love you and I want to know you. I want to set you up for success in this life. Okay, so that's wisdom literature, okay? I kind of feel like I need to say, any questions at this point? That's fine. We're, we're small enough. We can do that. So any questions at this point? <laughs> okay, cool. All right. So... Um, David talks about the outcomes of these two groups, the wicked and the righteous, and over to win over the simple to his side. That's what this psalm is all about, okay? That's what he's doing. And so uh, Janelle read a few of those outcomes. The outcome of the wicked here is in verse 10. In just a little while, David says, David's writing this, in just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. And this is what the the simple's knee-jerk reaction is. Maybe you're feeling it. Really? Really, David? The wicked will be no more. When I actually look around, what I see is a lot of wickedness happening. I see a lot of wickedness coming into power. You're saying that wickedness is on the out. What I'm seeing right now is wickedness is on the rise. How can this be? David is communicating this so many times in this psalm. Verse 2 for the wicked will soon face li- fade like the grass. 15, the wicked sword shall enter their own heart and their bows shall be broken. Verse 17, for the arms of the wicked shall be broken. Verse 28, but the children of the wicked shall be cut off. That's, really? Really, David? If you're anything like me, you doubt that. You doubt that. And if you're anything like me, you doubt the opposite outcome that David is suggesting here in verse 11. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. Is that true? Do we see that actually happening, David? Verse 17, but the Lord upholds the righteous. Verse 22, for those blessed by the Lord shall inherit the earth. 29, the righteous shall inherit the land and dwell upon it forever. Really, David? Is this actually true? And we doubt it. We doubt it. And I think it's okay to doubt it because I think when we actually look out into the world, we don't see this happening a lot. At least, that's, at least I don't. <laughs> at least I don't. Maybe uh, you're feeling this tension right now of like, oh shoot, my observation isn't matching David's observation in the Bible and you might be trying to wiggle out of this tension. Um, that's okay. I just want to let you know that you are wiggling out of it like this. (laughs) This is what Christians can do. They can say, hey, you know what? David's actually not talking about this life. The short path around this tension is to say, uh, David, this is, we can actually apply this to refer to when Jesus is going to come back. He's going to wipe away every tear from our eyes. He's going to instate his kingdom in full. The wicked are going to vanish. The righteous are going to take over the land. And this is how this passage is going to happen. Well, I'm sorry to say, but that's not an option that David gives us here. David doesn't give us that option with this text. How do we do it? You see, we have this big question of, why do the wicked flourish while the good wither? That's what we're left with. That's what we see in the world. And David's answer to that question is, they don't. 
how is this possible? You see, we, I think a lot of us have concluded that the life of a Christian is to trade um, life, happiness, joy in this life so we can have it in some future life. But David doesn't give us this option in Psalm 37 anywhere. You can read through it. Instead, he gives us this. Um, nope. Sorry, guys. He doesn't give us this option anywhere here. Sorry, guys. He doesn't give us this option anywhere. I lost my train of thought. It's okay. Well, let's just go straight to the point. Why is this? How can he argue this? Well, David can argue this because he is old. (laughs) That's why David can argue this. He can argue it because he is old old. You see, us in the simple, we have a snapshot of life. David has the long game in mind. He has the long game in mind. He was writing here, I have been young and now I am old and I have never seen the righteous forsaken in this life. He's saying that over the long game that this will pan out in people's lives. Now, he knows that this isn't going to be universally true for every single snapshot, but that's not what his wisdom is trying to do. He's trying to argue for a generality of how lives work here in this world. He's trying to argue for this generality, and we see this here in verse 35. He says, I've seen a wicked, ruthless man spreading himself like a green laurel tree, but he passed away. And behold, he was no more. Though I sought him, he could not be found. Subtext, there was a snapshot or maybe even a period of time where this wicked man was doing pretty good. He was spreading like a tree, but then he was no more. So what David is arguing is it might not be this month, might not be this year, might not be this decade, but the wicked will eventually vanish. That's what he argues for his outcome. He argues the same for the faithful. He says it might not be this month, it might not be this year, it might not be this decade, but the the righteous, the faithful, those who are trusting in God, they will flourish. And when we don't grasp this reality, When we get stuck in the snapshot, what happens? We fret. We experience emotional, a lot of negative emotions. Fret, worry, anxiety, anger, wrath. And this is exactly why David's main counseling notion for all of us that he repeats three times is fret not yourselves. It says, simple people, you see this happening. I get it. I understand it. But fret not yourselves. Look at verse 1. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers. Verse 7. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Verse 8. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself. It does what? It tends only to evil. David's main counsel for the simple is you're going to see the wicked prosper. You're going to see the faithful get the short end of a straw a lot. But fret not yourself because these outcomes are true over the course of a life long lived. A life long lived. And that's in a city like Seattle, there's a lot of fretting happening. 
There's a lot of anxiety. There's a lot of wrath. There's a lot of anger at the current state of affairs. We don't have to go into the specifics here. You guys can fill in the blanks. It's it's not just a Democrat thing. It's not a Republican thing. It's not a Christian thing. It's not a non-Christian thing. There is all sorts of anxiety and fretting happening in this world. This text is something... This is David reaching 3,000 years later and trying to help us deal with the crisis that we feel that we are in. He's saying, you are in a crisis, but don't worry, don't fret. Our anger, when we respond to these things in anger, wrath, envy, it leads to just more evil, is what it says in verse 8. I mean, I've learned this, so many, this lesson so many times in my life. I, I can be right a lot but I can also be angry and be right. And when I'm angry and I'm right, it just just multiplies evil. Ask my wife. It just multiplies evil. I mean, that's how fights don't get solved, right? Okay. David calls us to another way in verse three. He says, trust the Lord and do good. It's important that things, these things are right next to each other. He says, trust the Lord, rely upon the Lord, because there's a, a waiting here, a patience here, but it's paired with something very important, and do good. Fret not yourself doesn't mean that you do not take any action. It just means that you take action from a different disposition than anger, wrath. There is a lot that we have to do in this world in order to deal with a lot of evil that's present. Am I right? And we have to do this good, not from a position of anger and wrath. I just want you to see that because I'm not arguing that we sit on our hands patiently waiting for the Lord to fix things. He's put us in this world to be uh, the salt of the earth, the city on a hill, to be Jesus' hands and feet here in this world that needs love, that needs action, that needs us to do things in order to bring about his, 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 his beauty, his grace. So, we're not sitting on our hands. Okay, so those are the outcomes that David's trying uh, to, to arguing for, and you don't have to believe them yet. That's okay. You don't have to believe that these outcomes are true. Maybe you can think in your life, like, or you have an example that, hey, you know what? I saw a good person go down to the grave because of the wicked, or the vice versa could be true. But David is going to, the, the main thrust of this psalm is he's going to get argue two uh, big themes that we interact with every day in life that prove that these outcomes are indeed the case, okay? Those two big things, themes that we interact with every day are power and money. Power and money, okay? Let's start with power. Verse 12, the wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him. Uh, the, The subtext here is that the wicked wants the power that the righteous has, that the faithful person who's trusting in God has. He wants that power. But the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he sees that his day is coming. Um, we keep seeing the Lord laugh in these psalms. I think it's like the fourth time we've seen the Lord laughing in our psalms this summer. Uh, and always for the same reason, because the wicked is trying to get ahead on his own power uh, and for his own causes, and God's like, that's not going to work. Okay? And, and God finds it funny. Um, yeah, I think God is still compassionate. I don't think there's a, a loss there, you know, but there's just more of a, when a parent looks at a child who's rebelling and really it's almost comical. They're like, that's not going to work. Uh, I remember I ran away once when I was a kid. My dad laughed when I was leaving. He's like, okay, good luck with that. You know, it's like, well, I came back, you know? Uh, <laughs> so, 
Verse 14, the wicked draw the sword and bend their bows to bring down the poor and the needy, to slay those whose way is upright. Their sword shall enter their own heart and their bows shall be broken. This is a common wisdom that, that, is, that almost everybody believes, I think, and it goes like this. What goes around comes around, right? This is the, the Buddhist notion of karma that's widely believed, you know, in, in the Western world. What goes around comes around, karma, you know? The, the imagery here is the wicked is trying to, to stab the righteous, but boom, gets himself right in the chest. It's war imagery. It's pretty graphic. Or pull the bow back and the bow breaks, which would pull all of the shrapnel from that bow right back in your face. And it'd be traumatic. Often uh, death would follow from those kind of injuries because these bows are pretty big stuff. You know? So the imagery here is what goes around comes around. But this isn't an impersonal force. Look at verse 32. The wicked watches for the righteous and seeks to put him to death. Same scenario. But the Lord will not abandon him to his power or let him be condemned when he is brought to trial. Wait for the Lord and keep his way. He will exalt you to inherit the land. You will look when the wicked are cut off. So God is the one next to the faithful, next to the one who's trusting in him. The imagery here is his attorney defending the faithful from the blows of the wicked, the plots of the people who are faithless and want to take his power. Now, this is true generally in the world, um, but we have to ask this of ourselves too. Because if we're going to entertain the thought that we're wicked, if we're going to entertain the thought that our hearts kind of bend towards selfishness, it's probably likely that we might be getting on board with the brokenness of our industries. I'm talking jobs. We might be getting on board with the depravity of our workplaces, of our companies. You know those things that they ask you to do and you kind of, your conscious kind of pricks within you and so you ask them and they say, oh, that's just how we do things around here. If you had any that's just how we do things around here, discussions. You see, the power dynamics of uh, the workplace are primarily so that people can excel their careers and the communication is get in line or else your career is not going to go anywhere. If you haven't ever thought about what the darkest parts of your industry, your profession, your workplace, your company are, that's a great half hour that you need to do some brainstorming over because each and every industry is broken in its own ways, and they're going to invite you to participate in that brokenness, and you're going to feel like you have to so that you don't lose power where you are. Okay? This happens in relationships as well. How are you going to consolidate power within the relationships that you have? Our hearts are bent at establishing relational capital. We're relational beings. We want to have relationships. How are we going about in doing that? Is it through gossip? Is it through backstabbing? These are ways that we try to consolidate relational power in our lives and that we're invited to because it's everywhere out there. It's everywhere. So this is a call for the simple to reconsider how they think about power as well. All right, the second one is uh, David's observations about money. He's writing about money and finances a lot here. He starts in verse 16. He says, Better is the little that the righteous has than the abundance of many wicked. Better is the little that one righteous person, person has, this is kind of, the verb is singular, or the noun is singular, than the abundance of many wicked people. 
And this is something that we all know to be true as well. We all kind of say, hey, there's a lot of beauty in the simplistic, content life. There's a lot of beauty there. When you have a lot of stuff, it, it doesn't really work out well. I mean, the, there's a huge minimalist movement that swept through the United States and, and Europe. It's not generally Christian at all. But why does David say this is important? He says this is important in verse 17. He says, For the arms of the wicked shall be broken, but the Lord upholds the righteous. I love the imagery here. Uh, the imagery is that the wicked is putting more and more things into their arms, more shoes, more clothes, cars, houses, boats. I mean, you, you name it, putting more and more, and their arms just break off. <laughs> Their arms break off because they can't hold everything. And this really refers to the fact that as we own more and more and more things, those things start to own more and more and more of us. We get further and further into debt, and soon we can't even hold the things that we have, and they fall off. And instead, what happens, something really, really beautiful. <clears throat> the Lord upholds the righteous, it says at the end of verse 17. So the wicked are trying to hold a lot of things. Their arms break off. The righteous are holding a little bit, but the Lord holds them. And this is what, what is played out in verses 18 and following. The Lord knows the days of the blameless, and their heritage will remain forever. They are not put to shame in evil times. In the days of famine, they have abundance. But the wicked perish. The enemies of the Lord are like the glory of the pastures. They vanish like smoke. They vanish away. This is like... Uh, withering of the grass in the summer uh, that we see in Seattle. Everybody's lawns are toasted, right? Verse 21, the wicked borrows but does not, and, and really the Hebrew is saying, and cannot pay back, but the righteous is generous and gives, for the blessed of the Lord shall inherit, shall inherit the land. What's happening here? Times of famine, God holds the righteous up. Um, my wife graduated college in 2009, with a degree in urban planning, which was a terrible year to graduate, especially with a degree in development, <laughs> where you're going to be building things, because that whole industry was essentially uh, in a hiring freeze for three years at that point. And this was a famine, okay? This is, this is a huge famine. And uh, we, we, we were like, what are we going to do? She was she probably interviewed for 100 jobs over the course of almost two full years. But God was holding us. He kept on providing little job after little job, uh, waiting tables here, serving drinks there, nannying here. Uh, I cut chicken, put it on rice here, and then I did that here, you know? And, and we just continued to be faithful with God and, and give back to the local church even the little that he was giving us, and we never went without What's more is we, we, I, I was going through seminary at that time, and I wanted, we really wanted to do that without taking on any debt, and God even empowered us to pay off $45,000 of my seminary degree in those three years. It's remarkable. It, it shouldn't have happened, but it did. People didn't give us money. It, it just, God kept on lining everything up for us and finding work for us. We're so confident that, that as we remain faithful to God with our finances, that he'll continue to provide for us, that when we felt he was calling us out here to come to Seattle, we just said, well, I guess we'll go, even if Christy doesn't have a job lined up. We know that we can't support a family in Seattle on just a minister's salary. Um, God will work something out for us. And sure enough, 
A month before we left, God sent a hailstorm on Denver. Glorious hailstorm. Totaled our car. Still ran. Eight grand in our pockets. God holds those righteous who are faithful to him with their finances. This is the only place in all of Scripture. Money. Only place in all of Scripture that God challenges his people to test him. It's in Amos chapter 3. He says, test me in this. Bring me the full tithe. That would have been 10% of their produce. Bring me the full tithe and see that I don't unleash the storehouses of heaven. No, sorry, the floodgates is the word. The floodgates of heaven on you and bless you for the Lord, those blessed by the Lord shall inherit the land, verse 22. It's the only place in all of scripture where God invites his people to test him in that. It's beautiful. And David follows it up in verse 25. He's not done talking about money. He says, I've been young and now I am old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. He is ever lending generously and his children become a blessing. Sometimes, I mean, we realize that money is tied to legacy. We're saving up money so that our kids can have some after we're gone. I have two little girls. We're, we're doing that right now as well. This says that God even makes sure that that happens, that him holding the righteous includes provision for them and their children to follow. David says, this isn't a promise. This is an observation. This isn't a... That's what we should realize here. David isn't promising that God will do that. He's saying, I've seen this happen in my many, many years, time and time and time. Again, those who are faithful to God receive blessing and abundance from God, provision and famine, enough to even give back, enough even for their children. All right? So that's, that's what David's doing here. He's, he talks about power and money to try to convince us that these outcomes for the righteous and wicked are true. You, and you, you may not believe him yet, and that's okay. You don't have to. They're, they're, he, you may still have these snapshots stuck in your head of like, but wait, it still doesn't pay off all the time. And David speaks to that as well. And so I, I want us to, to look at that. It starts in verse 23. It says, The steps of a man are established by the Lord, David says, when he delights in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be cast headlong, for the Lord upholds his hand. Uh, a little while ago, my, my daughter Penny was picking her up from daycare, and we run up the sidewalk after daycare in order to uh, get to the car. It's on 15th Avenue next to the U District, if any of you went to UW. Go dogs, I suppose. That's what we say, right? <laughs> Go dogs. I'm new to Seattle, I guess. I've only been here a little over a year. Um, but we, we run up this hill, and one day she just darted off without me. And I was like, uh-oh, this is a problem. Penny's really physical. She's really fast. She's really strong. She can hurt me. Right, Lucy? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> she can hurt me. And she's growing, so she doesn't know how long her limbs are. Every day, they're a little bit longer, so she's not quite sure how long they are. So I saw her dart off, and I went and grabbed her hand so we could run up the hill together. And at some point, she forgot how long one of her legs were or hit a crack, and she fell. And I had her hand, but she still scraped her knee. She still got a bloody knee, but it really wasn't that bad, so we kept on running up the hill. And this is the, the very similar imagery is happening in these verses. It says, the Lord upholds their hand of the righteous. 
He does not let them fall headlong. If I had not been holding Penny's hand, boom, she would have gone out right on her face, probably gotten gravel in her hands, scrapes on her hands, scrapes on both knees, dirt and, and stuff all the way up. It would have been an event. But I didn't let her fall headlong because I had her hand. Sure, there is a knee scrape that happened there, absolutely, but not a falling headlong. Perhaps you've fallen in this world in your short time on these earth, on this earth. Perhaps you've fallen and you scraped your knee, and I just want to counsel you and say, you know what, that could have been worse if you had not been connected to God. Or maybe you fell and it was really, really bad, and you, you weren't trusting God. That could have been a little bit better had you been trusting in God. That might be ignorant for me to say, but this is off of David's experience of full life that when we fall, we have someone there to catch us. And maybe we still don't believe David at this point. That's okay. He says, maybe you still don't believe me. And this is why he says, at, towards the very end in verse 37, he says this, Mark the blameless and behold the upright, for there is a future for the man or woman of peace. Mark him, he says. He says, you don't want to believe me? Fine. Find people who are trusting in the Lord, that you think are living a very faithful life, and just watch. Go look past a snapshot and let that start to be a longer and longer time frame that you observe. Just watch, just see, because there is going to be a future for that person. He's so confident in this. So he, he says he's observed this throughout his entire life. I'm young, now I'm old. He can say all this because he's old. And 2,000 years after Jesus, we have that person we can mark. There's a little bit of uncertainty there, and like, oh, shoot, who can I mark? It seems like everybody lets us down nowadays, right? Anybody in a position of authority is going to let us down. But if we look back 2,000 years, we have someone who is perfect, who is blameless, who is faithful, that we can mark. We can really see Jesus as walking through this entire psalm. At the beginning of his ministry, the wicked identified him. At the very beginning, he was in his late 20s, maybe early 30s, and said, I'm going to make, they said, we're going to kill that guy. It took him three years to figure out how they did it, how to do it. Eventually, they got the opportunity and did it. The faithful falling. A snapshot, but the faithful falling nonetheless. And so David recommends that we mark the faithful, and so we can mark even Jesus and say, how did being completely faithful set Jesus up? Well, when he fell on the cross, which was awful, when he fell on the cross into the grave, God had his hand, and he didn't fall headlong. God raised him up again three days later. David observed this happening in the world before Jesus was here. Look at verse 39. The salvation of the righteous is from the Lord, he is their stronghold in times of trouble. The Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in him. Friends, I don't think we have a problem of being faithful to God in the world because we're particularly evil. I don't. I think we have a problem of, of being bold and doing huge faithful actions out in the world because we're scared. 
I think we see that if the faithful way is truly to be followed in this world, if I'm going to follow the faithful way in those dynamics of power and money that David's talking about, it's not going to go well for me. I think that's, it's okay to admit that. It is completely okay, but David says, don't worry. He's encouraging us. If you take steps of faithfulness in the world, if you take steps that you feel that God's asking you to take in this world through trusting in him and relying in him, that he's going to save you and deliver you in times of trouble when in the snapshot, they're not going to go that well. He's going to save you. He's going to deliver you. He's going to start to build an inheritance in this life right now. This is what David is telling to us simple. If you follow after God faithfully, you will reap a reward now in this life. This is his observation. He's old. He can say it. He has a little more wisdom than we do. And now I think we're ready to hear his counsel for us. Let's read it together. Fret not yourself because of evildoers, verse 1. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him, and he will act He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Skip over to verse 27. Turn away from evil and do good. So shall you dwell forever, for the Lord loves justice. He will not forsake his saints. Verse 34, wait for the Lord and keep his way. He will exalt you to inherit the land. You will look on when the wicked are come off. Jesus said in the Beatitudes, the meek shall inherit the earth. He's ripping it from Psalm 37. Commentators agree. Maybe he was talking about now, not later. Let's pray. Father, I just want to acknowledge, we, we all just want to acknowledge how, how wise you are, how you uh, started humanity and you have seen how it ends. You sit outside of our time and you love us and you know us and you can confidently speak through your servant David and through your son Jesus saying that you will deliver us if we seek to follow you. So God, right now, I pray for my friends here who would say, you know, I'm not quite yet a Christian, but I'm considering it. Lord, I just want to celebrate that consideration with you. And Lord, I pray that you would continue to help them think about this throughout their weeks and, and ask a friend questions about it. Lord, I pray for my friends here who say they've been considering Jesus for a long time. Maybe this is a new avenue of consideration for them as the simple. Lord, I pray that you would honor that, that you would show up as they wait patiently for you. I pray that you would begin to enact your arm of deliverance in their lives now. For you're a God that loves justice. We pray that you bring it in full. Pray all this in the name of Jesus and by your spirit. Amen.